Good morning, guys. Everybody doing good? Good. Well, you know, something Garrett said just caused me to think. Uh, He said, you know, we were just a few of us and the rocks crying out to God this morning uh, at the beginning, and then it uh, kind of filled up, which is a good thing. Um, But that just uh, reminded me of the passage that uh, says that if we refuse to praise God, all of creation was created for that purpose. We exist for the purpose of honoring and glorifying God. That's why we exist. That's what he made us for. And that's what he made everything for. And so everything is designed to bring glory to God. And he has said that if his people refuse to praise him, that will not keep him from being praised. Even the rocks will cry out in our absence. And I just have this commitment in my life that as long as I'm on this earth, no rock is going to have to cry out because God is worthy to be praised. Amen. And so what an awesome privilege it is just for us to be here together and have the opportunity to praise him. I'm so thankful for that. Um, In the book of Judges, I've been reading the book of Judges in my own quiet times the last month or so, and the book of Judges is the weirdest book in the Bible. Maybe the book of Revelation is right up there with the book of Judges, but the book of Judges is strange. And, And half the time you read a chapter in Judges and then you go, wow. What in the world does that mean? What am I supposed to take out of this? But there, right in the middle of the book of Judges, in chapter 6 and 7, we see this story that unfolds that is this sort of weird, strange, amazing story. And I want to share with you this morning as we lay the foundation for Ephesians chapter 6. This is a time in Israel's history where they have been led into the promised land. They have taken up their residence now in the promised land, and they've been there long enough that they have gotten comfortable in the promised land. They've sort of gotten used to God's goodness and God's blessings, and they begin to take God for granted. And if you've read your Bible at all, you know that this is a pattern for God's people, that once God blesses us, we tend to just relax and go, oh, this is great, this is easy, and then we take our eyes off of God. I don't know if it's true for you, but it's certainly been true for me, that during the times in my life when there is pressure, when there is hardship, when there is doubt, when there is uh, challenges, those are the times that my eyes go straight to God, right? But in the times when everything is going fine and everything I touch is turning to gold and everything is working out just fine for me, those are the times when I begin to think, you know what, I can handle this. This is about me. I could do this. And that's basically what was happening for the nation of Israel. They had gotten comfortable with God's blessing. They began to turn their hearts away from God and gradually began to um, worship the idols of the land that they had taken possession of. They hadn't chased all of the people out of the land, and now they're intermarrying with these people, and now we're having this situation where they're starting to accept the gods of the Midianites and the Amalekites and people like that. And, And so God basically says, I'm going to have to show you how much you need me, and I'm going to let these people that you have become so familiar with become your oppressors. And so the people of the land of Midian basically become this great power during this time. And the Midianites began to gradually and strategically attack the nation of Israel. And they don't do it in the traditional ways that you would think. They're not stupid enough to take on the Israeli army straight up because they have seen how God has gone before them and taken out country after country and army after army. And so instead what they do is they start planning these raids. They wait until harvest time. And when it gets to be harvest time, when it's just time, but they're about to reap the fields, they go and burn the fields. And they wipe out their livestock. 
instead of attacking the army, they go in and basically take away their food supply. And they're just, they're just chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And it seems like whenever Israel sets up over here to be prepared, they come in over there. And whenever Israel's army is prepared over here, they come in over there. They come in by night. They come in under darkness. And they're just wiping out Israel until everyone in Israel is now shaking in their boots because they're afraid that the Midianite army has finally got them set up to where they could just come in and wipe them out. And they're, they're really struggling with things like starvation. And they have no way to, to feed themselves. And they're being surrounded by this great army. And, and there's this young man whose name is Gideon. And Gideon is the youngest son in the weakest family in the lowest tribe in all of Israel. And he is a chicken, and so basically what he's doing when we first meet him in Judges chapter 6 is he's in this big uh, room called a uh, wine press where, where they, they you know, press out the grapes to make wine, wine, but it's a room and it's covered up. And so he's in there with the wheat and he's threshing the wheat that he has harvested from his field thinking I'm going to have just enough wheat to, to feed my family if I could just hide from these Midianites who keep coming in and coming in. So he's hiding out in the wine press trying to get some wheat together when all of a sudden the Lord appears to him. And when the Lord appears to him, the youngest man from the weakest family in the least of the 12 tribes, by the way, does that remind you of anybody else that, that God called and used in a mighty way? David, right? And, and the Lord calls him, Gideon, to actually go after the Midianite army. Where he's been hiding along with everybody else, God says, no, no, I'm going to use you to go after this army, and I'm going to use you to destroy this army. The Lord calls him to go after the Midianite army, which the Bible describes as as numerous as locusts, and their camels as numerous as the sands of the seashore. And so there is no army in Israel. And what does he do? He, he gathers up 32,000 men after some argument with God, after some explanation to God about how he's not able and he's not ready, and some questioning of God and some making God prove himself. He finally says, okay, God, I hear what you're saying. And he gets 32,000 men who are willing to fight against this army that is as numerous as can be imagined. And as powerful as can be imagined. And these 32,000 men draw up and, they, and they, they've got their pitchforks and their swords and whatever they've got at home that they think they can fight with. And they basically put together this little militia to fight this great massive army. And when they get together, he looks at these 32,000 men and he basically presents them to God and says, here they are, God. They're not much. We don't have weapons. We don't have training. These guys don't know what they're doing. And there's only 32,000 of them. So we're really counting on you. And God says, as I look at this army, I think there's too many. And, and, and you could just imagine this, this conversation between God and Gideon where Gideon says, um, too many. They have more camels than we have men. They have more of everything than we have. They're, they're a finely trained army, and there's tens of thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them, and they're surrounding us, and there's only 32,000 untrained men without proper weaponry, and you say they're too much, and God says they're too much, and let me tell you why. 
Because if this army goes into battle against the army of the Midianites and I give them over to you, people are going to praise you and they're going to praise this army and they're going to say, what an incredible battle plan, what an incredible general Gideon is, what an incredible army this is that such a small group went up against such a large group and wiped them out and I don't want anybody getting the honor and the praise except for me. And so he says, I want you to call the men together and to tell them if anybody is afraid, you're dismissed. And so he gets all 32,000 men, and he says to them, listen, guys, I know you're not trained for this. I know this is going to be hard. If anybody's afraid, you can go home. Now, you can imagine, this is a group of men that are ready as an army. And he says, if anybody's too chicken to fight, you can go ahead and go home. Now, if you said that to a group of Marines or a group of army uh, soldiers in our country today, there's not anybody who would move, Right? Even if they wanted to move, they wouldn't move because of the peer pressure. He says, if any of you is too afraid to go into battle, you can go home now. And he probably expected maybe five or 10 people to sneak off. 22,000 men left. Of the 32,000 men that were there, 22,000 men left. And Gideon went, oy vey. <laughs> and then he went to God and said, okay. You better know what you're doing because there's only 10,000 guys now. And God said, you know, as I look at these 10,000 guys, I'm thinking there's too many. And Gideon says, what am I supposed to do? I, I didn't have a chance with 32,000. How am I supposed to do it with 10,000? And now you say this is too many? He goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take them to the water and let them get a drink of water. And whoever gets down into the water and just drinks from the stream, that's going to be one group. And then there's going to be another group that laps the water up in their hands and drinks it this way. I want you to just use the guys who pick up the water in their hands and drink it that way. And so he divides them based on that, and it leaves them 300 men. Out of the original 32,000, there are now 300 men. He sends 9,700 home. And he says, we have 300 men. And now we're going to take on the mightiest army we've ever seen. And God says, don't worry, I have a plan. And Gideon says, you better. <laughs> and so they go into battle and, and Gideon gathers his men by night and he sees the camp of the Midianite army there and he knows that it's about time for them to go to sleep and he gathers his men and he says, listen, we're going to divide into three groups of 100. You guys go that way, you guys go that way, and we're going to come forward. And, and they say, okay, what kind of weapons are we going to use? He says, here's what you take with you. I want everybody to take... Um, you know, you'll have a clay pot, like a pitcher, each one of you is a, for your water supply. I want you to empty that out of water and just take the pitcher. And I want everybody to take a little handheld torch. And I want everybody to take a trumpet. A trumpet. I mean, it's one thing to try to fight a great army when you have a bunch of great soldiers. But basically, these guys are trumpeters. He, he says... He says, I'm not going to take the football team for this one. I'm going to take the band for this one, okay? <laughs> and, and I want you guys to go in with a trumpet and a pitcher and a torch. And basically what you're going to do is you're going to take the torch in your hand and you're going to put the pitcher over the torch and hide the flame. And we're going to sneak up and we're going to get right around their camp. And when I say so, this is the brilliant part. When I say so, I want you to smash your pitcher on the ground and blow your trumpets. Okay, and, and then what do we do? No, that's it. Smash the pitcher, blow your trumpets. Oh, yeah, and say, for Gideon and the Lord. 
oh, okay. They get around the camp. Thousands and thousands of men there, trained soldiers. And on the count of three, they smash their pitchers and they hold up their torches and they blow their trumpets. And these men awaken and they look and all they see is flames all around them and they hear trumpets. And the only thing I can imagine they thought is, it's an army of angels. And they turned on each other and they just began swinging their swords. And before it was all over, the Midianite army was wiped out. And the only thing left for the guys with the trumpets and the torches was to go pick up the spoils. And when it was all said and done, nobody said, that Gideon is a brilliant strategist. Nobody said, those trumpeters are great soldiers. But to this day, thousands of years later, we read this story and we all say the same thing. Wow, what an awesome God. And we could talk about story after story after story. I'm not talking about fairy tales here. I'm not talking about fables. I'm talking about historically accurate um, um, depictions of what actually happened. And what we would say is, wow, what an awesome God. You look and say, well, no, no, no. It's because they had this great general. He was hiding in the wine press when he found him. The youngest of the weakest of the smallest tribe. So, well, it's because they had a great plan. Yep, it's amazing that nobody ever thought of the whole pitcher and torch thing before this. No, it, it, it's because they, they had advanced weaponry, yeah. Trumpets. Brilliant battle plan, right? No. It was because, as we learned last week from God's word, it was just as true then as it is today. Greater is he that is within us than he that is in the world. Friends, we are in a war. The enemy is real. We talked about this at length last week. He is powerful. He is hateful. He is serious about attacking everything and everyone that God loves. And you and I have absolutely no chance against him with our own wisdom and our own strength and our own authority and our own strategy and our own power. And thankfully, we don't have to contend with this terrible enemy on our own strength. That brings us to Ephesians chapter 6. Take your Bibles, if you will, turn to the New Testament book of Ephesians. We're in the last chapter of Ephesians, which is chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up today in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. It's so important that we highlight in our minds, if not in our Bibles, mine's highlighted in the Bible, I've, I've I've highlighted, underlined, circled, starred. I've done everything I can to a few words in these verses so that I don't miss the point. 
Go back to verse 10. Finally, be strong and highlight these words, in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. You're going into battle. You better get prepared. So what are you going to do if you have to prepare for battle? Are you going to start getting in physical shape? Are you going to start learning how to use your weapons? Are you going to go out to boot camp and learn how to be a unit and learn how to work together and learn the advanced weaponry and learn how to follow the generals and all of that kind of stuff? Is that what you're going to do? Are you going to become as strong as you possibly can in and of yourself? Are you going to strengthen your physical muscles? Are you going to strengthen your mind? What are you going to do in order to win this battle? He says, be strong in the Lord. In the Lord is the key to the whole passage. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of, underline, his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because when we think about and we take an honest, serious look at Satan and how much he hates us and how much power he has and how scheming he is and how deceptive he is and how good he is at lying and how good he is at tempting, and we look at all of that, we might go, you know what? I don't have the strength for this. And good, admitting the truth is step number one. You don't have the strength for this. So he doesn't say be strong in your own strength. He says be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on, verse 11, the full armor underline of God. Put on the full armor of God. God is your armor. God is the one who protects you. God is the one who enables you. God is the one who equips you. God is the one who makes it possible. What you need to be if you're going to be in battle is 100% with the Lord. And, and we look at all these amazing stories in the scripture about times when God's people went into battle and God did amazing things. The one common denominator, there's not a strategy to be taught. There's not a, there's not a, um, uh, a pat, uh, pattern to follow. There's simply this. Sometimes God saved with many. Sometimes he saves with one. Sometimes uh, God does miracles in order to deliver people. Sometimes God just strengthens individuals in order to deal with the challenge. Over and over and over, he does it differently. He didn't deal with Samson the way he dealt with Elijah. He didn't deal with Elijah the way he dealt with David. He didn't deal with David the way he dealt with Moses. We can't find a pattern and go, okay, these are the four steps you have to take if you're going to go into battle and you want to win. There's only one common denominator. In every case, it was God and not the people. In every case. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God. Remember when David had to go up against Goliath? And he went to Saul. Now, what you may remember about Saul, Saul was the king of Israel at the time. David was just a youth, not even old enough to be in the army. And, and he went to Saul, and he volunteered to fight Goliath, the great gladiator, the great warrior, the, the giant who represented the Philistines. Now, who was the biggest, strongest, most advanced warrior in all of Israel? Saul. The scripture says he stood head and shoulders above everyone else in the nation. He was Israel's giant. And as the king and as the general who led them into war, he wore this incredible array of armor because he had to be protected. After all, he's the king. And so he had this custom-made armor that he wore. And David came to Saul when Saul didn't volunteer to go take out the Philistine. And David said, I'll do it. And Saul looked at David, little runty David, and he said, you know, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't you do it? But I'll tell you what, 
take my armor. And he takes his armor, this, this breastplate that comes over down to here and is custom fit on him, and he takes it and he puts it over David's head, and it goes down to David's knees, and he can't even walk. And he takes his helmet, and he says, here, put this helmet on, and he drops his helmet on David's head, and it goes down in front of his eyes, and he can't even see. And he goes, here, take this sword, and David picks up this sword, and he, he can't even hardly lift it. And finally, David says, you know, your majesty, I think it might be a good idea if I don't wear this armor. I think this is the wrong armor for me. And so he takes it all off, and he goes in just wearing his shepherd's clothing, and he's got a sling in his rocks, and he goes to, to work. And God does amazing things. Saul's armor was useless against such a strong enemy. And so David relied on another kind of protection. He put on God's armor. And here in Ephesians 6, God is calling us to follow David's example. No human armor, no human training, no human weaponry is sufficient in a battle that is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual rulers and powers and forces of darkness. I've seen this done where in a children's Sunday school class, we teach about the armor of God, and every week in class, they make a different piece of the armor, right? And they, they make a, you know, a breastplate out of uh, you know, crepe paper, and they make a helmet out of plastic, and they do all that kind of stuff, and they got their little stick for a sword, and, and, and they got their shoes covered up, and, and you go, oh, isn't that cute? You take a picture of a little kid in Sunday school, and he's got his little plastic helmet and his little paper shirt on, and he's ready. It's really cute, right? But what if he actually had to go to war dressed like that? He'd be toast. He'd be absolutely toast. And that's exactly what happens when the church has nothing to offer people except man's theories instead of God's truth. You're going in with all these new psychological ideas, all these plans, something you learned in a seminar, and you said, oh, this is brilliant, and now I'm going to go be successful in life. It's like wearing paper armor into battle. And when the truth, when the church offers programs and methods to help people be happy, rather than actually teaching them the truth and holding up a standard and saying, live according to this truth, and don't settle for happiness, go for joy. When rather than equipping people to walk in actual obedience and general pers personal righteousness, what we do is pat people on the back and try to help them feel better in the midst of their unrighteousness. You know what we're doing when we do that? We're sending lambs into slaughter. We're sending people into real battles wearing paper armor. And it might make them feel better and it might make them look cute, but they are going to get wiped out. And when the church gets people all worked up about Satan, without giving people any tools for how to deal with his schemes and attacks... We're crippling people. People have to go into battle every day. We're taking away their only chance. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he famously wrote these words. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. There, there are some in the church 
who just taken the approach of going, you know what, I, all of that spiritual warfare stuff, I don't know anything about that. That's just all kind of mumbo jumbo. I really think the devil is not really a, an actual being. It's just sort of a personification of how we teach people not to do bad things. And I'm not really all worried about all that kind of stuff. And then on the other hand, we have these people who are just like, oh man, I have learned seven steps to how to cast out demons. I have I practiced exorcism. I know how to tell Satan what to do and he has to listen to me. I know the chants that I have to say and I know the verses that I have to quote and I know all the things I have to do to cast demons out of this speaker so we don't have any more sound problems and I'm gonna, ca- <laughs> right? And, and I'm telling you, I've watched it happen. I mean, I've literally watched it happen. Where, where, where there's a sound problem at church and people are casting the demon of sound interference out of the building. And I just want to scratch my head and go, we're treating this like a game. And so on the one hand, we have those who are so caught up in everything that has to do with the dark and the occult and Satan. And on the other hand, we have people that are just shrugging their shoulders going, ah, it's probably no big deal. And I love what C.S. Lewis says, that the enemy himself regards both of those camps with equal happiness. Because if he can get us distracted from the truth, that's half his battle. So we have to be careful not to fall into either trap. We don't have to live in fear. We have a God who is great. We have a God who is powerful. We have a God who gives us everything we need to succeed in these battles that we're facing. So we've been studying the book of Ephesians now for almost uh, the better part of this year. And if there's one overarching truth in this letter to the Ephesians, it's that we are made as Christians to be one with Christ. That we're one with him. That, That we cease just being ourselves when we come to know Jesus Christ, when we're adopted into his family. We don't just become his heirs. We don't just become his children. We don't just get blessed with salvation, but we literally come into a oneness relationship with God where the two of us cannot be separated. And he is the source of everything. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, he has guaranteed us our inheritance. Chapter 1 verse 19, he's exercised great power in our lives and filled us with his strength and might. Chapter 2, verse 5, he's given us eternal life, so we have no more need to fear death. Chapter 2, verse 10, he empowers us to do good works. Chapter 3, verse 10, he intends to use us to show his strength to his enemies. Did you get that? He intends to use us to show his strength to his enemies in the spiritual realm. Chapter 4, verse 22, we are no longer stuck in our old way of life, but we have been made new in the power of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 8, we've been delivered from the power of darkness, and now we can walk in the light. Chapter 5, verse 18, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk according to His power rather than our own. And if we've learned anything at all from this study, it's that God is awesome. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20, he is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or even think. His power, you guys, is so extraordinary and we are one with him. His righteousness is declared our righteousness. His Strength is declared our strength. His standing is declared our standing. And we are literally, literally joint heirs with Jesus. Our God 
is an awesome God. And that brings us back to chapter 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Aren't you glad to know that winning this battle is not dependent upon your own strength? <laughs> God has already won the war. There are just some battles that are continuing. This happens with wars. Even once a peace treaty has been signed, even when the enemy is defeated, it takes a long time for all of the people out in the far fields to get the news. There's a famous story about a Japanese soldier who was holed up in the Philippine Islands during World War II, and the war had ended. And years went by, and they never got a hold of this guy because he was doing such a great job of hiding out. And he's hiding out. He was the only one left from his regiment. And he's hiding out in the jungles. And then he would go in and do raids on the people. And then he would go back and hide in the jungles. And he's this mysterious guy who just keeps showing up and like killing people and stealing their stuff and, and sabotaging things. And this went on for decades. The war had been over. And it wasn't until many years later that finally somebody got to him and told him the war is over. And he dropped his weapons and went home. Guys, the war is over. The war has been won. There is no doubt. There is no waiting to find out what the final results will be. I have read the entire book. The last chapters are very interesting. And you know what it says? God wins. He wins. The war is over, but there's still some missiles being fired. There's still some mines in the field. There's still some soldiers out there who aren't willing to give up. And we're still stuck in some of those battles. And as we engage in the battle, we have to battle with the power of his might. We have to battle with the power of his strength. And it's a good thing, too, because your strength is never sufficient to do battle with the evil one. I don't know what you read. I don't know what you've heard. I have heard preachers say some crazy stuff about how we're supposed to interact with Satan. But if you have been taught that your job is to seek out Satan and then attack him, you have not been taught from the Bible. You don't have power over Satan. Oh, yes, but if I say in Jesus' name, then I can tell Satan to do anything I want. Really? Is that what it means to use Jesus' name? No, but that's how we twist the scriptures. But what if, I, what if I say, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord? Doesn't Satan have to go away when I do that? No. Remember in the book of Acts, the seven sons of Sceva, they decided that they had seen Paul and his associates casting out demons. And so they thought, you know what? If we could, get, if we could start casting out demons, we could get some followers too. And they wanted to make some money off this. So they watched what Paul and his uh, associates did. And then when they came up against a demon-possessed person, they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul teaches, we cast you out. And the demon spoke back to him. And the demon said this, I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul. Who are you? And then the demon attacked them. And all seven of them went away bleeding. Guys, it's not about mantras. It's not about taking the Lord's name and beating Satan over the head with it. It is about God's power, God's might, God's strength. And it is about God protecting us from the attacks of the evil one. You don't need to get a bigger gun 
or come up with a better strategy or recruit a great army. God has already given every Christian all the resources we need for the battle. Our only job is to use those resources by his power and might. So look at Ephesians chapter 6 and let's go to verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He says he's an ambassador for the gospel in chains. We talked about this months ago in our introduction to the book of Ephesians, but in case you weren't here or in case you've forgotten, where's Paul writing this letter from? Jail. He's quite literally chained to a Roman soldier. And, and the Roman soldiers change shifts, and they come in in all of their armor, and they take the chain off of one arm and chain it to the next guy, and he's chained to three or four different soldiers throughout the day. And by the way, what does he do while he's chained to them? Tells them about Jesus, and the Roman soldiers are getting saved. But he's in chains, and every day he's looking at the guy sitting next to him, and what is the guy sitting next to him wearing? Armor. The most impressive armor the world has ever known to that point. The most impressive fighting machine that the world has ever seen to that point, the Roman army, and they are in the most amazing armor that is possible from that day. Some of them have breastplates that are literally custom made and molded to fit their body made of steel, or not steel, but metal. Some of them um, have, have these, um, these belts that from the belts hang down this sort of apron in the front here, and it's covered with um, animal hooves and bones so that it, it uh, fends off anything that hits it. They have these incredible helmets that they're famous for with the plume on the top that are so shiny and beautiful. And he's looking at these soldiers and he's saying, this is a way for me to help them understand how God has equipped them for the battle. And we're going to give some thought to each piece of that armor that is mentioned here so that we can understand what God's talking about when he tells us to put these things on and how to use them. But before we get into the specific pieces of armor next week, I want to make sure that we avoid any confusion. People are fascinated by the idea of spiritual warfare. And even though the Bible talks about it, the truth is, the Bible doesn't give us many details. What we have is some very, very shadowy images of what's going on in the spiritual realm. We can't see what's going on in the spiritual realm. We're left with just these sort of shadowy pictures of something going on, battle in the spiritual realm. And, and what I have found is that for the people of God, when there is a subject that is fascinating 
And when the Bible says very little about it, people have a tendency to make stuff up. They just make it up. And so all kinds of stuff has been made up about spiritual warfare that is not taught to us in the scripture, like I was telling you about how we're supposed to attack Satan. You're not going to find that anywhere in the scripture. We, we've, we hear people talking about territorial demons. There's a demon of Duarte who's in charge of Duarte, and what we have to do in the city of Duarte is pray against the demon of Duarte. None of that in scripture, right? There, so much of what we think we're supposed to do, people have been taught to get up every morning and in prayer say, Lord, by faith I take now the helmet of salvation and I place it upon my head. And by faith I take the breastplate of righteousness and I put it over my loins and so forth and so on. And then, God forbid, I forget to mention one of those things because if I go off that day and I didn't put everything on, the enemy is going to aim his arrows at the spot that I didn't cover and then I'm toast. People have been taught that. I mean, I've read this in books, people teaching in seminars. I've seen TV preachers go on and on about this stuff. None of it's in Scripture. It's not nearly as complicated as so many people have tried to make it. Let's not make it more complicated than it really is. The armor of God is really very simple. It's not some mystical um, process that we have to go through each day before we step into battle. It's a permanent way of living in the power of Christ. Now, if we look, um, go back to verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then um, where it says right there, put on the full armor of God. Put on. The Greek word that is translated as put on refers to a once and for all act. Okay? So let's clear up misconception number one. You don't have to get up every morning, find your armor, and put it on, and then take it off when you go to bed at night, and then put it back on, okay? When I was uh, playing football, I remember that, that on game day, there was a whole ritual that went on to putting our gear on, right? Why? Because you're about to go out there, and some big guy is going to try to break you in half, and so there was stuff we had to put on that you would never put on any other time unless you were going out into the football field for a game. We had our helmets. We had our shoulder pads. We had these sort of little, in my day, they were just sort of uh, like little cotton padded flak jacket thing. Now they're like made with, I don't know, titanium or something like that. Um, we had these special pants that we had to wear that were skin tight. And then they were so tight and then we had to shove pads down into these pockets that were all around so that in our skin-tight pants, we would be padded, right? We had to have the right cleats. We had to have all of this kind of stuff. All of us were, you know, eight, nine years old. We walk out like this. We look like the kid from um, Christmas Story on his way to school, right? But we only wore that stuff when we were going to play. And as soon as the game was over, we took it off because it was uncomfortable. It was impractical. You couldn't run around in that in normal life. You couldn't just eat dinner in that. You couldn't sleep in that. You had to take that stuff off, and it stayed on the shelf until next week's game, and then you put it all back on again. And there's a lot of people who think the armor of God is like that. And it's up to me to just put it on when there's going to be a battle, and then take it off for times of rest, and then put it back on when there's going to be a battle. Here's the problem with that. There's always a battle, right? The Midianite army was asleep, and they got wiped out. There's always a battle. And so we're told to put on God's armor as Christians and to leave it on at all times. 
He is describing our ongoing condition as soldiers in the battle. So we don't have to wonder, oh my gosh, did I forget my helmet of salvation today? What if I was to die today and I forgot to put on my helmet of salvation? I guess that's it. I guess I'm not going to make it. Are we trusting in our ability to remember to put on a piece of the armor? Or are we trusting in the grace of God that saves us and keeps us and guarantees our inheritance? If you're saved, you have the helmet of salvation. It never goes away. And it protects you from the attacks of the enemy who comes to kill and steal and destroy. When he's telling us to put these things on, what he's telling us is to walk in the awareness of them, to actually live out the reality of them. And we're going to get into that next week. Because here's the deal. Satan is a schemer. Look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He is always plotting and always looking for points of weakness and an opportunity to attack. Always. And you know what else? He pays attention. He knows our weaknesses. And he sees where we're not appropriating the armor of God in our lives. He looks for those areas that are easy to attack. He customizes his attacks. The way he attacks you is not probably the way he's going to attack me because my weaknesses are different than your weaknesses. He is going to customize an attack for me. He's going to customize an attack for you. The things that are tempting for me may not be tempting for you. So he's not going to tempt you with the things he tempts me with. But the things that are tempting for you, I might not be the least bit interested in. He's going to aim at you, those arrows that are safe for that. The issues that I've not worked through with the Lord are different than the issues that you're struggling with. But the enemy, he's a prowling lion looking to attack its prey. And, and you know this. You've watched National Geographic. You know how this works. When a lion is hunting... And they're crouching down in the tall grass, and there's a group of gazelles out there. The lion doesn't just run out after the gazelles, does he? Actually, she. The, the female lion who does most of the hunting, she stays crouched in the grass and watches for a while. And what's she looking for? The weak ones. The young ones, the old ones, the crippled ones, the ones that are separated from the group. The easy prey. And she goes after that one. Our enemy is a roaring lion. Works the same way. He studies us. He learns our weaknesses. And he aims his arrows carefully. And that's why God has given us a full set of armor to live in. We are being attacked. I was thinking about this this week. And I was thinking, have you ever been watching a, a football game and a fight breaks out in the field? Two guys get into a fist fight in a football game. It happens in every game, Right? And I always shake my head and go, what an idiot. If you're a football player, you are covered head to toe. There's a mask and a helmet on your head. And some yahoo is going wham, wham, and punching you in the helmet with his bare fist. Who loses that fight? The guy throwing the punches, right? That's how it works. He goes away with broken fingers, blood dripping down his hand. He goes, well, I hit that guy. No, you didn't. You broke your hand punching a guy who was covered in armor. If we're covered in armor, we're going to be able to fend off the attacks of the evil one. But we need to be wearing all the armor that God supplies. He's a schemer. 
He works with lies. He works with fear. He works with temptation. And we resist lies by knowing and walking in the truth. We're going to talk about the belt of truth. We overcome uh, fear by being filled with the Holy Spirit. We, we, um, we face temptation and overcome temptation when we remember the words of 2 Corinthians 10, 13, that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, what with every temptation gives a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean God will not allow serious temptations to come your way. What it says is, by the Spirit, with the armor of God, you are able to resist the temptations. You go, no, no, there's a couple of temptations I'd never resist. And guess what? The enemy keeps tempting you with it, doesn't he? There's, a, there's some temptations I just fail. I just not, I, it's not in me. You know what? Chocolate cake, <laughs> I'm having it. I don't, I don't care how many points it is on my Weight Watchers thing. I am having chocolate cake, right? There are just some temptations I just never win. I'm never going to win these battles. And God's word says, if you trust God and walk in his power with the armor of God, there is no temptation that you cannot resist. You go, I, I'm, I don't have it in me. I don't have the strength. Exactly. Just like Gideon and his 300 men had no chance against that army. It's his might. It's his strength. And just as David refused to wear the wrong armor into battle, we need to reject unbiblical visions of what it is to be in these battles with our enemy as we face him. If we walk into battle Every single moment of every single day wearing the armor of God, the armor that he has provided, then we're going to have success. We're going to live lives that thrive rather than just surviving. And we're going to be victorious in the power of his might. Next week, we're going to tear apart every piece of this armor and look at it and go, what does this do and how do we wear it and what does that look like? But for today, let me leave you with this thought. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. And since the battle belongs to the Lord, you better belong to the Lord. And so we got to really begin to break this down and get practical and ask ourselves, you know, is my life about him or is my life about me? Because if I'm out there and my life's about me, and I'm doing it on my strength, and I'm doing it on my power, and I'm doing it with my wisdom and my protection and my weaponry, I'm like an old crippled gazelle got absolutely no chance. And don't think that our enemy is going to look at you and go, oh, she's having a bad week. I'm going to give her a break. Because that's never how it happens, is it? You don't have to rely upon yourself. You don't have to rely upon your power. It's all about him and his power. The same exact power that created the universe. The same power that cast Lucifer out of heaven when he raised himself up against God. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead when they took him off the cross completely dead and sealed him in a tomb. The same power that makes us alive in Christ when we were dead in our sins. That is the same power that God clothes us with for the battle. The battle, my friends, belongs to the Lord. We're going into that battle. We're sitting in that battle now. I was going to say, so as we go out those doors, we're going back into the battlefield. 
Now, you're in the battlefield right here, aren't you? Some of you have been sitting here going, I just can't concentrate on what this guy's saying. I'm thinking about every other thing in the world right now. I just, I'm just, I don't know, what's he talking about? Ephesians, what is that? And, and you're just completely distracted. God bless you. I get it. Some of you have been sitting here and you are just doing everything you can to keep your eyes open because you were up really late last night and you've been had a stressful week and you're sitting here and it's warm and it's comfortable and your eyes are going like this. And you're thinking, God, I hope you can't see me. I could see you. I've thought about having electrodes put into the chairs and a little button up here would be great. I might just settle for a high-powered squirt gun. But, but here's my point. Some, I've had people come up and apologize. Oh, pastor, I'm so embarrassed. I fell asleep while you were preaching. I know you must have seen that. You know what? I've fallen asleep in front of so many preachers. I get it. I get it. But don't think it's nothing. It's the enemy. It's an attack. Because when God is trying to do something to change your life, the enemy is going to do everything he can to distract and confuse you and to pull you away from what God is doing. Guys, we're in a battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. Let's walk in the power of his might, in the, in the strength of his might, in the armor that belongs to him and comes from him and is in, 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 infused with his power. Let's walk in the battle that way and watch and see what God does. Let's stand together and we'll pray.